listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Adverse drug reactions, or ADRs, are a serious issue in healthcare today. The pharmacist is the last line of defense to help prevent ADRs. A rising role of the pharmacist is the specialist who focuses on our children. Pediatric pharmacy ensures safe and effective drug use and optimal medication therapy outcomes in children up to 18 years of age. Currently, there are more than 1,450 board-certified pediatric pharmacy specialists, known as BPS. If you're interested in this expanding field of pharmacy, this podcast is for you. All right, everyone, let's give it up for our host. Welcome to the Pediatric Pharmacist Review. I am Justin Cole, one of your co-hosts for the podcast, joining you from Cedarville University. And as always, Jenna Quinn is with us as well. Jenna, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Justin. How about you? Doing well. Hey, before we jump into our topic with our guests today, I know there have been a lot of exciting things going on with Perfecting Peds, so I didn't know if you wanted to take a moment and share some of those uh, things with our listeners today. Yeah, so thank you for, for giving me the time to talk about this, because as you can tell, I have, a, I have a lot of passion, and I'm actually going to open up with something that we did together. Um, because I'm super excited about this. So if you don't know, um, my partner here, Justin, is the most talented writer. So uh, whenever he asks me to edit anything he writes, I swear he probably doesn't think I even read it because I just write no edits um, (laughs) because he's so so talented. But um, I have uh, been beating, you know, beating a drum over here um, just because having three girls of my own and then, uh, having this business perfecting peds, which provides, um, just to really shortly summarize it, comprehensive medication management to children and various ambulatory care sites. So we essentially partner with the caregiver and the patient, um, longitudinally and follow them anywhere from seven to 12 times a year. And we partner with those who are, who are really medically complex. And as, as we get to our guests, um, I know he probably sees some of them in the ICU. Um, but coming out into the ambulatory care space, it's been really eye-opening, again, with my own daughters and just our patients were seeing that there's no weights on scripts um, in the outpatient setting. And it really sets up pediatric patients to um, have medication errors. And it doesn't arm the outpatient pharmacists in the retail community setting to even check the scripts. So Justin wrote a beautiful proposal to the Ohio State Board. And um, Justin, I would love if you, you kind of summarize that and then just tell us where we're at, because that was a, a really exciting uh highlight of the past couple of months. Yeah, well, in short, what we wanted to do was advocate for having patient waits on pediatric prescriptions. Um, I I know that this is a bit controversial, um, but the reality is the vast majority of prescriptions that are filled uh, from community pharmacies for for, um, children are done in the community pharmacies that are around the corner from all of us. And in order for a lot of those prescriptions, especially for the youngest kids, to be checked appropriately, the pharmacist has to have all the information to check the dose. A lot of those doses we know are weight-based. And so we wrote a proposal to the Ohio State Board of Pharmacy to consider adding the requirement for patient weight on prescriptions for children 18 years of age and younger. And I'm excited that they've actually proposed a rule that's now in, um, that's now getting comments from the public. And so there's a lot of traction here to at least get the dialogue going, even if the rule doesn't move forward, and I'm hopeful it will. I'm just excited that we have those from our boards that are um, considering this. So it's a super exciting thing. Yeah. And actually, I just met with um, the majority leader and uh, people in New Jersey, the legislative uh, team in New Jersey, who is going to also work on the same thing, uh, a request for proposal. And then hopefully, again, if we if we just keep keep saying it and shouting it from the rooftops, it will get done. I think only when it's amazing, you know, we have three 
pediatric pharmacists here on this call, but there's only 1,700 of us from what we can tell um, as far as data in the states in, in the United States. And that's really small because I keep getting the same question. Why why has this never been brought up before? And I'm like, well, because the pediatric pharmacists are the, the ones that are, you know, see it the most essentially. So that's one super exciting update. Again, the second one is that we finally got attention and a meeting with New Jersey legislators, which is huge. Um, we're going to hopefully be able to partner with Medicaid of New Jersey to start mandating some of these comprehensive medication management services in the medically complex kids, which would be huge. Um, we have our first publication coming up in JPPT, which has been accepted, just waiting for it to be published. Uh, we contracted with our first managed care organization, which for lack of a better words, um, they match.com us with the second children. And then we, we take it from there where we provide our services and really uh, collaborative synchronously across the, the whole board, dietitians, social workers, providers. Um, and then lastly, we have, uh, we're in a clinic that's up and running where we practice through a collaborative practice agreement, just like we do so in our long-term care and, and acute care facilities. And we're getting more and more attention. So. Thank you for letting me highlight all that. It's it's some really exciting work that um, I could scroll on all day because I'm so passionate about it. So thanks for giving me a few a few minutes of your time, Pete, that I stole from you. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue uh, into introducing our guest today. So I am super excited to have Pete Johnson with us here on the podcast. And our topic is going to be delirium assessment prevention and treatment in critically ill children, and a topic that I know Pete is really um, excited about. And Jenna, if you think I can write okay, man, you're meeting the, one of the cream of the crop right here. And Pete, he's a pretty prolific guy. So <laughs> anyway, Pete, we're so glad to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me. And two two kind of words. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm happy to be with you guys. Great. So um, why don't you get us started by telling us a bit about yourself and your current role, and maybe your background into how you got into pediatric practice. Uh, sure. So I uh, actually grew up in Mississippi. I went to a school at the University of Mississippi or Ole Miss, um, and did my residencies at the University of Kentucky. Um, and I've been um, uh, a faculty member with OU for the last uh, 17 years um, in practice and, and, and critical care, primarily in the cardiac ICU these days. Um, but my sort of segue into pediatrics, um, my um, actual older brother has congenital heart disease, um, was in the cardiac ICU, and um, uh, just from those experiences of being with him in the hospital setting, going to doctor's appointments, kind of got interested in, in peds from that perspective. Um, and uh, um, I think my other segue is uh, when I was five, um, I uh, uh, drank some bleach, uh, took my brothers to Jackson, and then something else within the matter of about three weeks. Um, and so interestingly enough, um, one of our family friends um, through a, a church connection was actually the director of the poison center and he was a pharmacist and a toxicologist and so i think my segue into pediatrics kind of started early <laughs> so. oh boy you, you must have done a number to your parents oh yeah, my god i think so i as think a, so as a mom of three i'll yep. like i'm thinking of uh, you know i'd be scared to bring you back they're gonna think you're making right. things up p right <laughs> <laughs> um you know what's really cool and this is like just what a one second um, detour. I got to meet the pharmacist today because you talked about your brother, right? Right. My, yep. my sister had epilepsy growing up, and it is mm -hmm. funny how much that you don't even realize, whether subconscious or consciously, mm -hmm. it just drives your whole attention to, mm -hmm. you know, how and how you really shape yourself as a professional. And I've always organically gravitated towards the epilepsy population. I got to meet today. I had no idea until I jumped on the call, the pharmacist who actually created Diastat. Wow. Okay. I know. That's awesome. I, Pretty cool. I almost... James Cloud, a, a shout out, but it was one of those things that like I couldn't stop fangirling. So just like oh. you're you're saying, like you're, mm -hmm. it's amazing how much your uh, personal life shapes your professional life. And so thank you for sharing that with us about about your brother. 
Um, so I, I love reading JPPT. Um, I swear that the older I get, the, the dorkier I become where I just like can't get enough learning. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, why this area of practice and research you participate in one and, and why you're so passionate about it. Um, and I can echo before you start that this is a, a huge area of need and, and just, uh, raising awareness that it's a, concern and, and a thing is is so important on the pharmacist side but um i'm yeah. excited to hear your thoughts uh definitely i think um and kind of reflecting back one of my first sort of experiences with i think a patient that actually may have had delirium was when i was a p4 student um and i was on gen peds and we had a patient that had come from the picu that had been there multiple weeks and they were on methadone and i was like why are they on methadone? You know, the kid had withdrawal, but the issue was that they were quote unquote over sedated, that the kid wasn't acting like themselves. Um, and the pharmacist, um, uh, cause I knew nothing about it. So I had to lean upon my, my preceptor, but they were able to, you know, sort of taper him off and he basically had increased awareness. Um, and so going back to my P4 days, that and even though that wasn't a picky rotation, it, it really sparked my interest for pain management, but also sedation and withdrawal. Um, and in terms of delirium, um, I think this has come about because being an ICU pharmacist and and just um, going through like I think the the um, the waves of different practices. And so I think when I first started. The higher dose of the sedation, the better. Um, and you know, I think we learned from adults that was not the 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 right thing. Um, that you know, somewhere as as high as eighty percent of adults um, have delirium. Um, but the question, you know, came about pediatrics. And you know, up until the last ten years or so, we really didn't have tools that could assess delirium. And what I find is interesting is going back to that that that. Uh, that's that um, patient on my P4 rotation um, that, as well, you know, we may talk about that hypoactive delirium or uh, quote unquote over sedation is actually one of the most common symptoms in children of, of delirium. Um, and so um, I think uh, those experiences have been uh, sort of formative um, with me um, in trying to operate under the, the premise that giving more drugs is the wrong thing to do. So I think that the idea of de-prescribing um, yes. in sedation, um, other practices is really what our role, um, I believe, as the pharmacist is. That's great. And, and to even hear that word de-prescribing, that's not just something we think about in the ambulatory care environment, right? That matters in the ICU as well. So I'm glad you're, you guys are on top of that. So you mentioned that up to 80% of adults experience delirium when they are uh, critically ill. So what do the numbers look like for pediatric patients? And what are some things you feel like a pediatric pharmacist and other clinicians should understand about the topic of delirium? Uh, yeah, so that 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 point about the prevalence in in kids, um, uh, you know, since we're a little bit behind the adult world, um, the, there are some multi-center studies and other single-center studies, and so based on what I found, it's anywhere from five to sixty-six percent of the PICU or cardiac ICU population. And the NICU, it's a little bit less known um, because uh, we run into premature babies that have. Uh, normal, their normal trajectory of, of growth and development is, in terms of neuronal growth and development, is quite different. Um, so it, that's an unknown area. Um, so I think from that, um, in addition to a couple of other studies to su suggest that if kids develop delirium, it's not later on. It's actually earlier on uh, within the first three days. Um, and so I think that those are some statistics that that I think of in trying to educate to providers that I work with, et cetera. Um, but really um, the pathogenesis of delirium, like what it is, you know, some sort of abnormal neurologic state um, and really in the ICU setting, uh, often related to critical illness. Um, I think as a pharmacist, I first started learning about this, you know, I probably towards the end of my residency 
And I think the focus was drugs. And I think that makes sense. But I think what we've been learning is that uh, really with, with ICU delirium, it, it's as much uh, issue related to the inflammation that the patient has, as well as their oxygenation status. Um, and so I think then it makes sense that the first three days, uh, if a patient's acutely ill, that's where we might start seeing some of the the, the um, early signs of delirium. And then you throw drugs on top of it, and it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. So, um, so anyway, those are a few things that come to mind. Right. Yeah. I. I mean, I can tell you the, from from practicing in. Um, the ICU for so long and was like very under-recognized, but you could just like vaguely, before it was, we, we got more knowledge on it. It's just like vaguely described as like the caregiver saying, my my kid is not acting themselves. Um, but so what, what would you say? I mean, we kind of alluded to some of it, but are the common signs and symptoms are of delirium that, you know, we should be aware of as clinicians with pediatric patients? Um, definitely. So, you know, a lot of it um, uh, is sort of foundational at the level of the DSM-5 uh, criteria that includes, you know, disturbance and attention, awareness, um, not associated with some underlying uh, condition like intellectual disabilities, um, that it uh, may fluctuate through hours and days and may get worse at night. Um, so I think many of us that practice in critical care setting, it's, it's always a wonder, huh, why is this kid get more sedation at night? Well, um, again, delirium might be a part of that. And then again, some sort of findings that are related to the medication or treatment. But really, as I kind of alluded to, there's three main phenotypes. So hypoactive, the under, the over sedation rather, which I can um, feel 100% confident that my uh, patient on the P4 rotation was. Um, hyperactive, which I think in interacting with a lot of healthcare professionals, I think when they think delirium, they think of kids that have auditory or visual hallucinations, um, that the hyperactive type uh, type symptoms where they seem really agitated. Um, and then there's a mixed picture, which is the fluctuation, the idea of the DSM-5 criteria that some, day, some parts of the day they may be over-sedated, um, other parts of the day they may be more agitated. What's interesting, um, or at least I find really interesting, um, is that in adults and kids, it's actually the hypoactive in the mix that's the more common. So what we may think of as patients being really um, agitated or having auditory visual, visual, visual hallucinations throughout most of the day, that's actually very uh, or less common. Um, and so um, that's something that I have to fight with sometimes my providers is that they're like, well, I, I think that, you know, they're they're over sedated, um, you know, and and where I start to recommend, well, we should start doing delirium scoring uh, to really have a, a true picture of, of what's going on. Yeah, that's very helpful information and I think shows the spectrum of delirium that we see. It's not just one entity. There's a lot that can be involved with that. So, Pete, you had already talked about this a little bit, um, but I'd love to know what are the major risk factors for delirium in critically, kill, critically ill pediatric patients? Um, a, a, a great uh, question. And um, I think... A lot of the literature suggests there's some things that we can modify and some things that we can't modify in terms of risk factors. So non-modifiable um, younger age, so less than two, um, kids that have some sort of neurodevelopmental uh, delay uh, at baseline, um, cyanotic heart disease, um, which um, may be a factor when they have to undergo bypass, like that might be the actual thing versus the actual defect themselves. That, that's a, in my reading, is not very clear. Um, and also poor nutritional status, so especially in albumin less than three, um, has been suggested as things we can't really modify. In terms of those that are modified, um, uh, you know, physical restraints um, uh, is, a, is a big one, um, which, you know, sometimes they have to be used for safety purposes, but the idea that you're restraining a child um, uh, can increase the risk for that. Um, mechanical ventilation, ECMO, uh, cardiac bypass. Um, and then specifically when it comes to medications, I think benzodiazepines are 
obviously the most associated in adults and kids. I like to tell or teach pharmacy students um, benzos equal bad uh, when it comes to delirium. Um, but there's other medications that have been implicated, so anticholinergics. So sometimes I have providers that like to use Benadryl or diphenhydramine to help with sleep or agitation. And there are studies that have suggested that um, anticholinergics or multiple anticholinergics um, can be implicated with delirium. And then there's others like opioids that has been associated with delirium, but my kind of take on it is if you have a really sick kid that also is post-operative, um, uh, they're going to need pain. Um, and so maybe, you know, we lessen the degree of um, the medic the dose of the medication we use, but it's not going to be truly um, possible to get rid of the, the opioid. Um, vasopressors um, have been implicated, um, but in my mind, you know, going back to the premise that um, it could be medications when it comes to the origin of delirium, but a lot of times it's severity of illness. So sicker kids are going to need vasopressors. So it may be the severity of illness, not the vasopressors that are implicated. And then the last one, big category, is anti-epileptics. So um, I think that goes along with the idea that neurodevelopmental delay is a non-modifiable factor. And many of those children, not all of them, um, are on anti-epileptics. So that also, just like the vasopressors, could be um, sort of a signal, but not the actual um, the thing that's causing uh, the, the delirium itself. Yeah, and I, I feel like I'm dating myself when I say, like, I remember when we were in the ICU before we were aware of ICU delirium, when my physicians, like kids would, you know, act out like if they got that true agitated delirium and they would try to knock him out with a benzo, yeah. which would then make it worse. Right. Um, again, just I, I hate anticholinergics. I post a lot on LinkedIn just to like bring awareness that yes, this is the issue for the geriatrics, but like let's not mm -hmm. forget the children. Right. Um, and again, like before we were aware, I remember, you know, back 12 years ago when that was we just added Benadryl on because we couldn't get their yep. circadian rhythm at all. Yeah. Um one one question I have for you, and it was kind of like I felt like the only tool. And I'm learning more and more, Pete, that this might not be a benign intervention, but when I had these providers go up for a benzo or, or anticholinergic after we were aware, sometimes I would add melatonin, um, kind of like almost as like a negotiation point of, okay, yeah. if you want to add something, this is what I would go with. And actually in a, in a few podcasts, we have a, a guest talking about that, but I don't know if you have okay. any insight on that. I, I actually do um, uh, we we recently not to like self promote myself that sounds awkward but we recently are, are going to have a, an article coming out in JPPT where we looked at melatonin use in kids less than a year um, because most of the the data there's not a ton um, are in older children and not really um, those that may have the most um, significant changes in terms of um, neurodevelopmental uh, impact. Um, but in adults, there have been mixed results that I found where some have suggested that it can decrease the incidence of delirium. Um, others, it, it's kind of questionable. Um, I think that it's a relatively benign intervention, um, as, as you mentioned, Jenna, that, that uh, compared to other things that we could do, um, it's safer. The question that I have is, is related to efficacy and in um, I ran across an, an article that looked at the um, the differences in formulations. Since obviously it's not a it's not a drug, it's a nutraceutical, whatever you want to call it. And this one particular study found about a 200% variability between the different melatonin um, formulations. So with our study where we uh, looked at melatonin use in kids less than a year, uh, we had a little bit of problem because we had issues trying to get. Um, in my mind, the, the, you know, when you have an issue like this, at least trying to get the the medication that has a USP pharmacopoeia endorsement, that's at least better than nothing. But we had issues trying to get that product, um, and so we couldn't do that. Um, and so it sparked a lot of challenges. Uh, we still don't use a USP uh, product um, uh, because we're trying to also 
give a lower dose. And there's been some concern in geriatric patients that if you give more than three milligrams, that actually can uh, cause hypothermia and other issues. So um, we've kind of landed on not going above like 0.2 per kilo with our oral liquid. But again, it's not a USP product. So I don't have a good answer as to how effective that it is. Um, and so I think that um, melatonin in particular will be a hard uh, medication to study um, due to some of those issues. So thank you. That's all. That was an awesome answer. I didn't know you. I was talking to the guru. Um, uh, no, 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 that was no. off the cusp. But, but thank you. So can you can you just talk about uh, some validated delirium assessment tools? I, I remember, I mean, this was two and a half years ago, but we used the, the Cornell. Um, I yeah. would be curious what what is the most up-to-date tool? Uh, definitely. Um, so I, I had the privilege, I will say as a disclosure, of serving on the, the PANDEM uh, guidelines um, on behalf of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, along with um, uh, Cassie Ruggles and, uh, and Elizabeth Farrington. Uh, so we were the three of the pharmacist members of that group. Um, and so those guidelines, they were published in 2022. So if you haven't checked those out, I'll say to the audience, please do. Um, that the CAPD score, the Cornell Pediatric Assessment of Delirium is one that's any, it's really any age um, and it's an observer observation. So, um, a, you know, a nurse or um, a clinician observing the patient um, um, and that's in contrast to the PCAM ICU and the PSCAM ICU, which are out of Vanderbilt. Um, and those tools are different. They're more like the CAM ICU in the adult world. Um, and they require an interaction with the patient, um, which may or may not always be feasible um, uh, with some of our patients. Um, and so like the CAPD or the Cornell Pediatric Assess Assessment of Delirium, they've actually been able to look at patients that have neurodevelopmental delay because those patients may not be as interactive um, as composed or as opposed to other patients. So any one of those three um, are typically recommended. I think most institutions that use the PCAM, they're going to be using the PSCAM for younger kids versus other institutions like our own, we use the CAPD. Um, and I will say that um, uh, since those guidelines were published, um, there's been a couple of other tools that are um, uh, have um, sort of working on um, uh, the rigor of validity in terms of assessment. So the severe SOFIA observational uh, scale, um, it was mentioned in the, the guidelines, but not recommended because there was some additional testing that had to be done. And then there's another tool that, um, and I can't remember the name, um, but that tool is also an observer uh, observational scale um, that, you know, within the next couple of years may also be an option. And really, I think for a lot of these, it just depends on whatever works for that institution. Um, I was a big proponent and I'm not paid by them or any sort of way, but the CAPD, just because it's one tool um, uh, and um, we have had an EMR change in our facility. So trying to do something that's a little bit simplistic made the most sense for us. So that's why I've been an advocate of that one. But any one of those tools um, at this point are are recommended. Pete, I'm curious, based on your work with some collaborators recently, how often are these being used in PICUs and CTICUs across the U.S. right now? Uh, great, great question. Um, so uh, we um, actually, my resident and some other residents with the PPA, so the Pediatric Pharmacy Association um, Practice-Based Research Network, did a study looking at delirium um, management in the NICU, PICU, and cardiac ICU um, patient populations. And we only found that about a third um, had some sort of protocol. Um, and some outside that third were doing periodic assessment. Um, and so I will say the response rate compared to all the uh, institutions rep represented by PPA is low, but this is just a snapshot. And that tells me that we have a lot of work uh, to do. And I think pharmacists can be really big advocates for that, um, for sure. Yeah, thank you. I thought it was like, like well adopted by now. Um, so, so that's eye opening for me. Um, can you 
Can you discuss um, like the best best practices for preventing delirium in the PICU, both pharmacologic, but I know you know we we got to hone on our non-pharmacologic too. And as a pediatric uh, pharmacist, I found myself being like, pull up in the shades, turn on the lights. Right. <laughs> I love your input. Um, yeah, I think definitely non-pharmacologic is really key. So um, I think um, compared to the adult arena, there's less data on this. Um, and there's a lot of um, work I know being done to look at some of these interventions, um, particularly as it comes to early mobility. Um, I think in the adult world, they are mobilizing patients using less sedation more so than we've done in pediatrics. But um, there's a, a multi-center study called Pick You Up that I know a lot of institutions are members of um, out of the Johns Hopkins um, uh, institution um, that uh, are looking into that. But other things, as you mentioned, Jenna, sleep hygiene. So you know, something as simple as trying to make sure we establish a routine for our patients that we um, are turning on lights, things like that. And you know, that might not be a medication, but I think as a member of the team, um, I, I think you definitely pharmacists can advocate for that. Um, I think other things the PANDEM guidelines mention are family involvement on rounds. Um, so if you're like me, when you're first getting into um, a clinical practice, I remember years ago, the last people we involved in discussions were family members. Um, and thankfully that's changed. Um, and I think that's a, um, a huge thing. As, as you mentioned, Jenna, sometimes the, it's the parents or caregivers that notice a change in their child more so than we would be able ever be able to tell. Um, and so even though there, that might be hard to validate in some sort of study that involving the family and the care, it just makes a lot of sense of knowing what the kid appreciates or what they like, um, if it's a favorite stuffed animal or whatever it may be, that might um, lessen the impact on delirium. In terms of like other guidance, um, so even though we're behind in the world of delirium management, I'd say compared to our adult colleagues, one thing that's interesting um, and that's mentioned in the PANDEM guidelines um, is called Brain Maps. Um, so Brain Maps was developed um, by Vanderbilt University for the lead author of the PANDEM guidelines, Heidi Smith, um, who is an intensivist um, in the cardiac ICU and also an anesthesiologist. Um, so Brain Maps just, um, it, 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 it kind of can organize um, everyone, uh, pharmacists included, or maybe the pharmacist can use it to organize or help the, the team to think about it by different factors that might um, lessen the uh, the development of delirium. So B for bringing oxygen, R for getting rid of medications, A for the noise or the family presence, um, I for immobilization, um, uh, N is new organ dysfunction or failure. That might not be something a pharmacist might bring up, but M, metabolic disturbances, so electrolyte abnormalities that has been associated with delirium. Um, and then the, the last few, A, P, and S, so A is awake. So thinking about sleep cycle, possibly again, the role of melatonin, um, not, not clear on, on its exact role as we talked about, and uh, P being pain and S being sedation. And so I think with uh, that is um, oftentimes I feel like people want checklists or organized way to think through things. And I think the brain maps um, can really be something almost a pharmacist can work with a team to kind of go through a checklist and trying to look at those areas and try to prevent um, delirium as best as possible. So in my mind, that, that's kind of the non-farm and the farm approach to prevention. It's always great in the ICU setting when we have an algorithm to remind us what to do, right? We're all about fast hug and you name it. So it's great that we've added brain maps to help us keep organized, right? That's great. So we've talked a little bit about melatonin, but there can be some other treatment approaches in a child who has developed delirium. So Pete, could you tell us a bit more about some of those treatment approaches that you're seeing at different institutions? Um, definitely. Um, so probably the one that is, uh, it's mentioned in the PANDEM guidelines, the only one that's mentioned are um, atypical antipsychotics or haloperidol. Um, and specifically, uh, they're mentioned in the, the, the guidelines as not being recommended for prevention. 
Um, there are studies in adults, um, some with mixed findings um, uh, in terms of using it to prevent delirium. But in terms of treatment, they're only recommended for refractory delirium with severe manifestations, which um, some might be displeased when reading the guidelines that that's not very clear, but it's difficult to um, to always give uh, specific guidance in written form uh, for individuals. So in my mind, that's when a patient, a patient safety situation is where I think of as um, uh, being that severe delirium manifestations. Um, and so the issue with that is that, um, as we talked about, um, um, hypoactive and mixed delirium are the most common symptoms of delirium. Um, but in the adult arena, um, there have been several studies, including one within the last six or seven years, that found in looking at haloperidone, or haloperidol rather, and ziprazidone, that um, they didn't find any sort of beneficial effect when using antipsychotics for treatment. And in looking at the, that, that particular adult study, that multicenter adult study, um, most of the patients had mixed or hypoactive delirium. They didn't have hyperactive symptoms that maybe those agents are more effective for. Um, and so in the pediatric world, there's a lot of um, case reports, case series, retrospective studies, um, and, but to my knowledge, no prospective studies. Um, and uh, interestingly, there's a small retrospective study where they compared haloperidol versus placebo and then quetiapine versus placebo. Um, and they looked at delirium scoring and functional status when the kids left the ICU. Um, and there's a belief that if a patient has really bad delirium, their functional status will be low. But that study actually found that um, placebo was better than um, either antipsychotic. So we, I will say in my practice, we use antipsychotics. Um, I try to uh, make sure we're doing delirium scoring and try to get them off as soon as possible. Um, and I think also as part of that, you know, making sure we're recommending EKGs or electrolyte um, monitoring just to prevent the risk of QTC prolongation, et cetera. Um, I think one other agent um, that uh, is not in the guidelines, um, but there are some um, studies um, uh, that are in more retrospective form is gabapentin. Um, so um, I'd say most of what I've seen is more gabapentin in the NICU population. Same. Um, yeah, Same. with neuroagitation, et cetera. So that's Neuro another one. Yeah, yeah. Neuroirritability, yep. we call it, right? right? It's right. the hot word. <laughs> right. But that's interesting, Pete, because I wouldn't have thought to use that agent. But like you're saying, like, I don't know. I haven't taken a look at like the recent recent literature, but anecdotally, I've seen that a lot of our NICU babies and, and even younger children do really yeah. well on gabapentin for like neuroirritability, like when they're inconsolable for this these insane periods of time, you know, um, that's provided them comfort. And and who knows, maybe I know, you know, they they say gabapentin can treat a little pain too. So right. maybe this maybe that a role with that. Yeah, exactly. How cool. Um, would, not, would not have thought of that. So um, how does the treatment approach that you just talked about uh, differ in adults, um, if, it, if it does or does not, and, and is it substantial? I mean, at this point in time, I, I think it's mimicking, mimicking adult practices. Uh, but the problem is, um, particularly for the younger kids, I think something we just don't understand is the impact on neuronal development. Um, uh, so kids less than two are at most risk of delirium. Well, that's also the population that's most at risk for changes with neuronal development with sedatives, um, even opioids have been suggested, particularly in premature babies, of negatively impacting their neuronal development. And so I would just say um, that um, Sometimes, again, I think our role is trying to minimize if we are using uh, some of those agents uh, as minimal as possible, just because of the what we don't know, um, rather than um, what we do know, which is not, not very much as well. So Pete, I'd, I'd love to kind of just turn practical and let you kind of go in whatever direction you'd like based on your practice here. So 
when you think about delirium in, in children, what are some of the challenges that we face as clinicians that we've got to do research on, that we've got to hit head on to find answers for? Um, I think one of them in particular is um, trying to find the right tool to use in the NICU population. Um, so in the survey we did, that was the unit that had the least number of respondents that had commented that they used delirium scoring. And that's not surprising because um, we don't really know what's best. Um, I think, um, you know, we've mentioned the role of melatonin, maybe the role of gabapentin. Um, I think uh, one that I've often found uh, recently that's been problematic is um, assessment of uh, of delirium in paralyzed patients. So um, there really are no great tools to assess sedation um, or minimal tools to assess sedation or, or pain in paralyzed patients, but delirium would fall into that category as well. Um, so um, uh, those are a few things that come to mind uh, in, in, in my sort of take. So you've mentioned this already a little bit, but how critical is the role of the pharmacist in um, managing delirium and then the PICU? Well, uh, on an average day, is this something that you are finding yourself reminding the team to think about, whether it's non-pharmacologic or monitoring, or maybe we just need to do daily assessments? What do you end up doing as the pharmacist? What do you think our role should be? Uh, definitely. So um, the way I think about this is a macro and micro level. At the macro level, kind of trying maybe to incorporate yourself if you're not asked um, with the multidisciplinary team and development of guidelines or order sets or um, even an issue we face is making sure that uh, we could order delirium screening um, in uh, our in EPIC. Um, uh, we implemented EPIC in June and um, who would have thought that that would have been an issue um, uh, of just trying to find the right order for that. Um, and then I think in the micro level, um, you know, definitely um, suggesting delirium scoring. So regardless if there's a protocol or not, um, I'd argue um, that doesn't mean scoring will be done as it's supposed to be. Um, and so um, and making sure that happens early. Um, and sometimes I, I face pushback. They're like, well, the kid just got admitted. Well, again, um, the, the data shows that the highest risk is in the first three days. I think uh, the brain maps, again, maybe you take that with you or, you know, um, teacher trainees to kind of use that as a checklist and looking through what things can get we get rid of or minimize, et cetera. Um, so those are a few things that, that come to mind. Thank you. Sorry. Um, real life. My my two little uh, girls decided to jump in on the podcast, too. So my apologies, Pete. Um, you know, it's a whole family. It's a whole family right? thing. It's it a is family. a pediatrics yeah. podcast. So yeah. why yeah. not? Right. Yeah, I know there's, you know, one's always on my lap, uh, especially in the winter. Now everybody's <laughs> yeah. like sick. Um, right. So. I know when I left again, this like I find I left the PICU about a year and a half ago, but um, we had really, which was uh, again, it kind of ages me or says my age when, you know, when I started practicing, everybody was on a benzo, right? So like, you know, you started your fentanyl for pain when you're intubated, then you added on uh, the midazolam and that was just what it was. Um, then there, the newer literature came out for the adults saying, hey guys, like uh, benzos aren't that great. And then we, as always, you know, uh, pediatrics is always the last one to like right. pivot. Um, yep. We started pivoting towards using Presidex or dexmedetomidine and, and an opioid. And so I love to hear, does that align with the most up-to-date literature? What what are ways that we can um, balance, you know, the the need, the absolute need to have a child sedated and um, have no pain with um, their their risk of delirium? What's your best advice on that? Um, yeah, definitely. I think benzos, um, both adults and kids, have been shown to be bad, as I, as I said. Um, and so, um, I, 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 my own facility in our PICU and our cardiac ICU. We um, had issues when some of those studies were coming out, and I think finally we've gotten through. Um, uh, and 
Um, in some patient populations, in like the cardiac setting, uh, because of dexmedetomidine can help with arrhythmias, um, it's a great sedative to use. Um, I think part of the issue was um, such variability in dosing that sometimes providers weren't as uh, happy with lower doses, and maybe we need to use higher doses uh, to um, really uh, ensure sedation. Um, I think that, um, you know, in terms of opioids, they are um, risk factors for delirium. But again, as I mentioned, I don't know that we can get away with those. I mean, the idea of an analogous sedation is focusing on pain first. Um, and so I think, you know, um, what we could do is making sure, um, if appropriate, that we are using a multimodal approach. So um, even though a patient may be on a fentanyl infusion, making sure they have ibuprofen or acetaminophen ordered. Or maybe if the patient has neuropathic pain, um, adding an, um, you know, an agent like gabapentin for that indication. And that way you can lessen the, the amount of opioids they're on. Um, I think one bigger thing to look at would be the starting doses. So again, that might be protocols, but if we started a lower dose, maybe they can get by with a lower dose. And uh, looking at what your starting dose is, what your titrations are, um, and I kind of feel like if we start lower, it doesn't always mean that um, you can't get more, but it just will require everybody to reassess uh, if that change is, is necessary. So that's that's one uh, thing that um, I've learned, I guess, the hard way. Um, I feel like with some of our starting doses we have in, in protocols and other things at my institution is just because the higher, you know, starting dose may be a range, maybe start with the lower end uh, and go from there. Yeah. I one, one thing that used to drive me crazy that um, I think my residents just got after the, the sheer look of shock on my face is when they would do like the 0.5 mics per hour of, of Presidex, maybe give it like one second and then go up right up to like one. Right. And so I think as pharmacists, as understanding the pharmacokinetics is so important because like I would educate them, like you need six hours to see, yeah. you know, re reflect where we are on the dose. And so who better on the team than us just to, just to add to your comment. Right. So Pete, could you tell us, are there any things that you're excited about in this idea of pediatric sedation that's up and coming? Are there any new devices that help us to monitor any new ways to monitor any studies out there looking at ways to prevent or treat? Um, as I mentioned, I know that there are um, ongoing studies uh, looking at um, early mobility. And as part of that, um, the Pick You Up trial, the, this multi-center trial is looking at um, uh, their primary endpoint is assessing uh, days free of mechanical ventilation, but they're also looking at delirium-free days. Um, and as part of that, from my understanding, is that they are looking at sedation practices um, within a, a more global approach. I feel like there have been studies looking at um, Restore was one that was done a number of years ago, a very large uh, study looking at nursing versus uh, nursing-driven versus standard of practice uh, protocols. Um, and they didn't find much difference on their primary outcomes, but I think the pick you up is a little bit more global in terms of um, like sedation and analgesia are part of the bigger story. You know, it's not the only story, which in my, my take, that's kind of what the restorer was focusing on. So that's something that excites me. Um, I do think uh, there are some other uh, studies looking at um, melatonin um, and other non-pharmacologic practices um, and how that can relate to um, delirium prevention. And so those are um, those are a few things that come to mind. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, I feel like even being out for like a, a year and a half, it feels like that's like such a long time. I'm like, probably what I'm saying is not even, <laughs> not even current, because um, it is really scary how fast things change. Um, change. Exactly. day to day in the ICU. So um, it, this has been such a, an enlightening and amazing conversation. Could you just um, end with just like, if you're going to say one one piece of advice or one little golden nugget to clinicians on how to improve, you know, not only um, sedation and analgesics, but just um, 
delirium management in general, what would you leave them if you could only only leave them with one thought? Um, uh, I have many thoughts, so it's hard to nail down to one. But um, <laughs> I think try to um, try to be more proactive. So that macro approach. Um, and again, sometimes I um, feel like I've had to interject or interject myself into conversations about development of protocols or things of that nature. Um, and so, um, and even if your institution has had one, like maybe you need to assess how things are going. Um, uh, and oftentimes with protocols, different people leave, you know, nursing staff changes, provider changes. And so even if you have a, um, a protocol um, or whatnot, um, collecting data data to see if it actually is working. So that's one interrelated thought uh, that I have. Pete, you've covered a ton of ground for us. We've got brain maps to melatonin, benzos are bad. We talked about some Presidex, all kinds of stuff. We really appreciate your expertise and being willing to share it with us today. Hey, I wanted to give you the opportunity here at the very end to kind of summarize some key resources or guidelines that you would refer our listeners to on delirium. Um, definitely. So I mentioned the PANM guidelines, uh, so definitely would check that out and there's an appendices that goes along with that. So that has a lot of other uh, discussion points. Um, uh, and then uh, Vanderbilt um, has a great resource on uh, delirium um, for uh, pediatric and adult patients um, and other tools, et cetera. Um, and then um, I'd say, if you're trying to develop a protocol, again, it feels weird to be um, uh, like uh, promoting my own work, but um, uh, I'd, I'd say check out our, 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 I guess, recently published article uh, looking at survey practices of pediatric delirium and soon to be one focused on melatonin in kids less than a year. Yeah, we have to, we're, we have to call you back when that's published. You're getting on for that one too, so get ready because <laughs> yeah. that's something that I feel like is like the more and more things that come out, the more I'm like, maybe it's not as benign as I thought, which scares me. Um, right. But but yeah, we would, we would love to have you back on. And uh, you've been amazing, Pete. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, yep. Pete, no need to worry about self-promotion when you're on the forefront of pushing care forward for kids. So keep up the great work. And again, thank you so much. Yeah, we love it. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review.